Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1993. And listen up, listeners. You can listen to this podcast in a gas station, a residence, a warehouse, a farmhouse, a hen house, an outhouse, or a doghouse. It doesn't make a difference because today's movie is The Fugitive. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear. And this is the show where we are endeavoring to find the hundred best films of all time. And when we do, we are going to blast that list into outer space and hopefully attach digital copies to the list so aliens can watch it. Is, is that the premise ultimately, Amy? Are we going to be letting the aliens watch it or just reading a list of it? Oh, no, they have to absolutely watch these things. But what we do need is we do need a space expert that we can talk to about how this is going to work. So if you are a space person, knows the different ways you can send things to space, or if you know a space person and they can talk to us, unlike my my darling, darling friend who works for a rich billionaire who's not allowed to tell me things, please talk to me. We need some help sending these films to space because I'm a film critic, not an astronaut. Well, and you know what? As we get to our year anniversary of being free of the AFI list, I think it's a time for us to go back and look at the last year of movies that we've talked about since we started with Back to School one year ago in just a couple of weeks and look at what is going to be coming to space because we haven't made a lot of strong distinctions lately. So I feel like after Summer Series, let's dig in. I want everyone to be thinking about all the movies that we talked about in the last year. And uh, and I want everyone to think which ones go to space because we picked some great movies in this last year. I know. I'm really in need of this conversation. I'm really just in need to make some decisions because every time we watch a movie, the movies have been great. And I've been like, I love this movie. Maybe. So I need to look back on an entire year of really good movies. And I think... When you see the giant landscape, it'll be easier to make some hardcore decisions that are t- that are tricky in the minute. It's easy to say no. It's hard to say a definite yes. All right. I, I like that. I'm going to tell you right off the bat, the movie that sticks with me the most so far in the last year, Ganja and Hess. I talk about it all the time. I don't know if it belongs in space, but how can a movie that sits in my skull for so long not go to space? Man, the same reason, you know? I love I, that. Yeah. That's the one that really is 
I'm going to be fighting for that one, Amy. So be prepared. I, I, I might, I might take that one to the mat because I feel like that is such an interesting film. I mean, as long as you aren't biting and killing me, I will right. have this conversation with you. Well, I love it. And people have been really enjoying this series. I called it Audible last week to pick The Fugitive after we talked about Speed. Uh, A we've movie been... that you hate. I was so surprised. You know, I don't hate it. I think You hated I... it. You know, I've had a lot of conversations about it since you and I have watched. And I really feel like it was a movie of its time that I really liked. But if I want that, there's better places for me to get that from better movies. That's all. That's how I feel about it. I I don't have a I don't carry much anger towards it. I enjoyed the conversation about it, but there are there are better films than that to give me that rush. And okay, so I'm going to argue that maybe today is that film. I mean, like we we did put these two films against each other: The Fugitive and Speed. And so we've been existing in a very '90s uh, world. These are a little bit more of adult films. Uh, you know, and I think we can talk about those two films together, even though they're not exactly the same. Uh, yeah, they are not exactly the same, except rewatching Speed for the episode we're about to get into. I was like, oh, yeah, this is an action movie that has a seat on a bus, a seat on a train and a seat on an elevator. Oh, my God. It's like every action movie just takes three forms of transportation and remixes them. I mean, oh, boy. Well, we can get into all this. <laughs> I, I, I really want to break down. I, 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 I probably will to the annoyance of many listeners, uh, compare and contrast speed in the fugitive, but fuck it. I don't care. Uh, I do want to point out one thing, Amy, uh, we've been having these conversations. They've been such a great, uh, time to go and reflect on these classic movies, but someone in the discord brought up something and I think you will love it as much as I have loved it. Um, there was, uh, this gentleman, Ryan North, who did a breakdown of the novelization of the movie, Back to the Future. And apparently the novelization of Back to the Future, which is, uh, if you're not familiar, when I was growing up, one of the coolest things you could do was go to the bookstore and get the novel version of the movie. And for me being a big movie head, I I have Beverly Hills Cop 2, the novel. I have Total Recall, the novel. I actually still have them in my house right now. I kind of collect them. And um, apparently the author of Back to the Future, the novel, got an old script And the book is insane. And Ryan North, you can get it on Kindle, breaks it down. It's actually longer than the actual book. And I started reading it last night and I am laughing my head off. He just does, breaks down each chapter. It shows you different things about Marty. I mean, it is making me laugh so, so hard. I need to read this. Um, I'll read the, the opening of the book of Back to the Future starts with a nuclear attack. Um, and, and then it's revealed that Marty is actually watching a movie with a nuclear attack because one of the original scripts had Marty getting in a refrigerator, uh, that was hit by, uh, radiation that helped him time travel. But then they realized that kids couldn't get in like freezers and stuff. But, um, there's a lot of weird elements in it. And I'll read you one more line just because it's too funny. Um, this is, uh, They call Marty the most daring and enterprising of the class. He listens to stereo rock music and, uh, (laughs) and, and it like, it's, 
it's really like it's written by an old man trying to figure out like what cool kids are doing. And uh, there's a character in here called Mr. Arky, who's a little bit of his nemesis. Um, and apparently Mr. Arky is a secret phrase that uh, Google has now deemed to uh, get a lot of pornography, a very specific type of pornography. So uh, it's, it's Wait, it, are you going to tell me what the phrase is? Mr. Arky. If you type in Mr. That is Arky. just the phrase? Oh. Yeah. If you Mr. type in Mr. Arky into Google, you will get a very specific type of pornography. Not, not time travel pornography. How do you uh, spell Arky? Uh, you spell it A-R-K-Y. Mr. Arky. I will uh, say it autocorrected me to Mr. Markey. And Mr. Markey has a very, very big dick. That's hilarious. Uh it just sounds like a very old man trying to write a young hip book about Marty McFly. And so far it is great. So I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, if you want to continue your deep dive into summer blockbusters. I mean, stereo rock music. Is that just like headphones? I mean, apparently Marty only has one headphone in, so it's not even he's not even appreciating the stereo. I'll also say, Amy, that a little bit on the discord, people have been like, well, you know, you want to talk about summer blockbusters, but you've really been existing a lot in the 90s. And I think, you know, the 90s is a really interesting time for summer blockbusters. And it's such a giant category that we're talking about. And we've, uh, you know, taken out a lot of bigger pieces like superhero films and things like that. Um, But I do think the 90s is a special time for blockbusters. We're going to move forward after this week uh, for our final four. But uh, what do you think about the 90s and its relevancy to blockbusters? I feel like this is like the time of a prime blockbuster where it wasn't just all uh, one flavor in a way. Well, what I'm noticing and what I think we're going to get into even more when we talk about this episode is we did have a brief moment between guys who were super, super swole. You know, that we Mm -hmm. had a brief moment between like the Schwarzenegger and Rambo 80s movies and the Marvel superhero movies where we have action heroes who look like normal guys. And I think we keep tending to do that again with like a Liam Neeson movie or like John Wick, but those guys don't act like normal guys. Those guys can kill like 90 people and not even blink about it. So I think there is something special about these movies that we're watching where they actually feel like they have not even a foot in reality, maybe just like a big toe in reality, but enough reality that I feel so refreshed that I am worried I'm like amping them up as being more than they are by, you know, saying that speed is like a deep and existential film. (laughs) Um, but it's conversations that no one else is having. So I'm here for it. And I'm so here for this movie that we're doing today because this is a movie that I don't think is remembered or is regarded as highly as some of the other films that we have done, but I don't know why. So Amy, without any further ado, let's unspool it. It's my best Tommy Lee Jones. That was a Texas accent? (laughs) (laughs) The year is 1993. Bill Clinton has inaugurated the 42nd president of the United States of America. Don't ask, don't tell is the official policy of the U.S. Armed Forces, effectively banning openly gay soldiers from serving. An FBI siege on the Branch Davidians compound in Waco, Texas, ends in 82 casualties. Canada elects their first and so far only female prime minister. But Kim Campbell chooses to leave office after a few months. Now, if you're thinking, wow, a lot of these uh, year facts uh, sound familiar. Well, it's because Unspooled has 
dipped its toe into the 1993 well a lot. Uh, That's right. This is a year that Groundhog Day comes out, Days and Confused, Schindler's List, Cool Runnings, Jurassic Park, and of course, today's film, The Fugitive, all are released. What a banner year. Amy, is this our book? Should we do a, a book about 1993? Ooh, maybe we should. I did love that book by uh, Brian Raftery about 1999. I know. I mean, this is like, can it be a a spiritual sequel? (laughs) I feel like I could make an argument for what was happening in the industry that makes 93 interesting. Yeah. Oh, my God. Very interesting. Um, Well, Amy, The Fugitive. Who's in it? Who made it? What's it about? Give me all the details. I will. Okay. The Fugitive is directed by Andrew Davis. And Andrew Davis, I think you could call him... The Steven Seagal Whisperer, because he is the director who made Steven Seagal's best movie, Under Siege. It's the movie he made right before he made this one. Better Uh, than speed. (laughs) And uh, wow, really? I think so. I haven't seen it in such a long time, but I'm saying better than speed. I believe it. Well, I will say Andrew Davis has some smart things to say about the action blockbuster that we'll get to later. Um, the film is written kind of by David Tuohy. There's some controversy about that. Oh, really? Yeah. And David, uh, of course, went on to write the film Waterworld and direct his own buff guy, Vin Diesel in Pitch Black and all of the Riddick sequels. But The Fugitive. Let's get into that. It is the story of a surgeon named Richard Kimball, who is played by Harrison Ford. And Richard Kimball is unjustly convicted of murdering his wife and unjustly sentenced to death for the crime. But Richard escapes and he is pursued by Deputy Gerard, played by Tommy Lee Jones, a guy who does not care about justice as much as he cares about the law. Now, both men have a point. Both men are smart and the chase is on. Take a listen. Why, Deputy Gerard, why do you feel that Dr. Kimball came back to Chicago? I have no idea. Marshall, we understand your deputies were at County Hospital today. Was Dr. Kimball at County Hospital? I don't have any comment on that one. Uh, Deputy, Deputy, I just want to make sure I have the chronology straight here. The suspect was tried, convicted, incarcerated, escaped, presumed dead, and is presently at large in the city of Chicago. Is that correct, sir? Uh, all except for the part about being presumed dead. Detective Kelly, do you believe that uh, Kimball is armed and dangerous? I believe he's dangerous, Detective Kelly, he's taking all these chances coming back to Chicago. Do you now feel that perhaps he might be innocent, that there may be a one-armed man out there? No, he's not innocent. He was convicted in a court of law. He's guilty. What are you going to do next to try to catch him? We have no further comments at this time. The Fugitive hit theaters on August 9th, 1993, which, you know as you're aware, is the dog days of summer. And that kind of hints that this movie was not expected to be as big a hit as it was. In fact, the movie made back over seven times its budget. It was huge. So when you take that and rewind it back, the top song on the Billboard charts, what uh, I kind of actually instead want to talk about like the fourth song on the Billboard charts, which was The Proclaimers, I Would Walk 500 Miles. I think that is a much better analogy for The Fugitive. I think it's actually really, really perfect. But in the interest of being honest, the real number one song that week on the Billboard charts was UB40's I Can't Help Falling in Love With You. I would like to recommend watching the video for this song because it's like a bunch of dorks trying to groove down a hallway. It's ridiculous. There's like a dork. So it's kind of like TikTok. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw you try to do that TikTok hand clap thing the other day. I did it. I did yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You missed the over-the-shoulder toss. I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to get too, I, I can only do uh, limited dance moves. So I, I figured I was going to just <laughs> embrace it for what I can get. If Barbara Corcoran can do it from Shark Tank, I'm going to give it a damn try. 
Okay, fair enough. If you watch the video for UB40, I can't help falling in love. Please pay attention to the man over. If you're facing him, it would be the right shoulder of the singer. I just think he's hilarious. Um, as for the song, the best argument I can make for a connection is that The Fugitive is itself about two men making a connection. I think the ending nods to Casablanca. So it is fun just to imagine Tommy Lee Jones driving Harrison Ford away and then karaokeing him this song in some sort of Chicago bar. I'm so excited to talk about this movie today because uh, I called it. I called an audible for this film. And the reason why was I was a little dissatisfied with Speed, as you know. But more importantly, the votes were so close between this and Speed. And I don't think that The Fugitive gets enough love. I certainly haven't watched it uh, since probably I had it on Laserdisc, so I'm dating myself here. But I was immediately blown away by this film. Not only does it hold up, it passed the most important test of all time, which is my wife, Miss June Diane Raphael, stayed awake for the entire film. I have not seen that happen in <laughs> years, years, um, like riveted. Uh, and I just wanted to get your first take because I have a lot of thoughts about this movie, but your first take in rewatching it. Have you watched it in a while? Like just, you know, what, what, what was your experience? My first first take? Yeah. Can I give you my first first take? Yes, sure. My first first take was, oh my God, this movie opens in almost the exact same like blue action movie font as Speed. What is happening with this blue font? Is this the original blue steel? Okay. I wrote this down because I was going to bring it up. I was like, immediately, (laughs) it's a better, it is the better version of Speed. I'm not going to do this the entire episode, but- the the soundtrack is better and the graphic titles are better. It actually made me jump because it has like a, a very eerie thing. And when the, the music kind of it's it gives you like a little pop, like a little jump scare in the music right away because it's recreating a, a hunt of a fugitive in those first two moments. It's it's got a little bit more of that diehard uh, clanginess, but it has a similar soundtrack to speed with that kind of hunt and uh, timpani, I guess. I'm going to say timpani. I don't know. but Say, uh, say timpani yeah. more confidently. You know, it's got that timpani. And uh, I was all in. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just thought I was like, already, I've my point has been proven. The title sequence is better than, uh, than speed. <laughs> okay, but what is up with the shade of blue, though? I mean, that is like the blue yeah. of my aunt's bathroom, which has seashells in it. What is this blue? Why does this blue say action movie? I don't know. I mean, you know, it seems sleek, right? I feel like Demolition mm. Man might have had a blue titling as well. I don't know. You know, I think that there are certain things that start to be copied. We talked about this last week a lot, too. You know, well, what what is the style that we are stealing from? I feel like Quentin Tarantino also has brought that into culture. Like, there's a lot more... Uh, things ripped from the 70s because I feel like people have seen Quentin's stuff 
where he does that. And then you're like, oh, now we're in this phase where everything (gasps) has like these letters and colors. And, you know, there's this I think sometimes in the art world, like you get you see something and then everyone else starts to copy the good thing and you get a you get a mishmash. Oh, my gosh. You just made me realize that if The Fugitive comes out in 1993 and 1993 is such a huge year. That 1993 is also the last year before Pulp Fiction, before we get a gazillion Pulp Fiction imitators. Mm. I wonder if there is something in that as like 1993 is a traditional or transitional film before we get this like new energy that then dominates and kind and becomes really self-reflexive and pop culture-y. I mean, I wonder, like you watch this movie and it feels like it's aspiring to be as good as The French Connection. Which is a, a movie that yes. I think is actually better than, since we don't like the French connection, that's already yes. gone from the top 100. Whereas a lot of the stuff that comes after is aspiring to be as good as Pulp Fiction. I think there is a dividing line here. Ooh, I like that idea. And I think what I really like about this film is that it's an adult film. It really kind of, it is confident in what it is. It is also timely. We are obsessed with murder and mm. wrongfully accused stories. I mean, this is something that I don't think we can ever get away from. I mean, you can see by the amount of murder podcasts and MSNBC specials, you know, we love this kind of story, but it does feel to me elevated. It doesn't feel, you know, we talked about this on how did this get made a little bit. There's an era of like sliver and mm-hmm. basic instinct. Like these movies where it was like, you go with your partner. It's it's not, this is a summer blockbuster, yes, but it's also not catering to children. It's like, nope, this is an adult movie about rich people. And they go on this, you know, obviously there's it's a very heightened adventure, but you know, there's something aspirational about the life that Kimball has in Chicago. Yeah, the UB40 song was on the Sliver soundtrack. Bringing oh it full God. circle. Of course. Of, of course. course it was. Of course But you it know was. what I'm saying? Like that that, that that 90s version of the adult movie. I do. Well, I think what I am seeing in this movie, or rather not seeing, is a movie trying to be hip. I don't think this movie is trying to be hip. I think there's nothing in this movie that would say, I am a creature of 1993, except one thing. Do you know? Do you know what I would think that one thing is? what is a creature of 1993? I'm I'm trying to think of the film and look at it in Amy's eyes. What (laughs) is she upset about in this movie? Not even Um, upset. Not even upset. Just laughed. Just laughed when I saw it. Hmm. I would say it has to do with something in their apartment. No, I can't. No, because the apartment's pretty Basic two. All right. Tell me, what do you got? Okay. It's when um, Tommy Lee Jones is on that stakeout to arrest the other guy. Oh, murder, yeah. The other guy mm-hmm. that um, Harrison Ford escaped with. And his costume, he's supposed to look, I think, like a bum. But in that little stocking cap in his trench coat, he looks like he's also trying to be a grunge teenager. He looks like he is full on grunge. He looks like he's trying to hang out in Seattle at the same time. I... And his outfit is so dorky grunge 90s, I immediately start cackling. You know, there's something really funny about that costume choice because I also felt it was the costume choice of Tommy Lee Jones. In <laughs> in, in my in my travels and, and getting to work in, in different things, those are the moments where you get a little bit of flexibility when you're doing, you know, a wardrobe fitting. You're like, oh, maybe this or that. I want to look like this. And, and I felt like, it was Tommy Lee Jones's character uh, picking out what he thought 
a homeless person would look like. But more importantly, it was Tommy Lee Jones going, it's going to be cold. I'm wearing something over my ears. I'm staying Mm -hmm. warm. And I feel like this movie has a lot of elements of (laughs) these characters and actors making choices to stay warm because they are running around in cold Chicago. And there are certain scenes where I'm like, oh, this is like a casual Friday movie. I mean, they're at one point, Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford, both just rocking jeans, just not, oh, yeah. you know, I loved it. I was like, uh, I love I've the style of this I've never seen movie. an action movie where people run around in like sensible shoes the whole yes. time. I mean, what are those like brown leather-ish orthopedic looking shoes that Harrison is wearing the entire <laughs> second half? Uh, I, you know, just but that also to- makes me think that Tommy Lee Jones like was looking at the grunge movement and being like, these guys look like a bunch of bums. Well, I mean, he's wearing essentially the hat that I think you've seen Kurt Cobain wear. It's, yeah. It, you know, it's it's um like on, is it on the cover of. Yeah. Yeah. Like the cover of Bleach or something. It's like a weird looking ear flappy hat. Um but here's yeah, it's what I'm like, say. it's hip. It's hip. But it's like in that moment where it's like, is does Tommy know it's hip or not? Like, no. My, uh, yeah. I don't think he's making fun of grunge. I think that grunge is taking from Tommy. <laughs> oh, so Tommy that, Lee is like the father of grunge. Yes. I think that I think that Kurt Cobain was a huge fugitive fan. And he's like, <laughs> I want to do some Tommy Lee Jones cosplay. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I want to bring up something because I think you are always astute at looking at films in a very smart way, probably smarter than I would ever look at a film. But there was something about this film that I thought was incredibly um, drawn, but not in a way that was overt. And I think it's about policing. This movie has a very strong point of view about uh, beat cops or regular city police officers versus uh, a federal agent, right? The U.S. Marshals are doing everything by the book. They are investigating thoroughly, but the Chicago cops are rushing to judgment. They are, you know, wrongfully accusing someone. They're not helping this person. They're just rushing to make a choice. And I, and I felt like that was a really interesting point of view in a time where I think a lot of the times in big budget movies, the cops are the heroes. Like we go back to, you know, Keanu, like they're kind of flawless and here they are incredibly flawed. But are they flawless even in speed? I mean, cause one thing that these movies have in common to your point, and I think you're exactly right that there's something happening under the, under the hood here is the crazy, or I guess I'm not crazy, I'm eccentric killer in Speed is a cop who's was injured in the line of duty and feels betrayed by the system. The assassin in The Fugitive is the same thing. Another cop who feels like he was betrayed in the line of duty, lost an arm, and is now mm. 
a professional assassin. In both of these films, there's a sense that if cops did right, if the force did right by its own people, that people less innocent lives would be getting murdered on the streets, which is kind of strange. They don't really ever draw either of those points out. You never know exactly what the force completely did here. But the guy seems bitter and he's not working for the force anymore. And he's taking money from a pharmaceutical company. And well, so he thought- lost his arm in a line in the line of duty. He was rewarded for that. I don't know why he like now he's like a contractor, like he's like yeah. a black ops contractor security. Um, but it is interesting that the the bad guy is a former cop in both films. Both films. right? And I think both films have a parallel conversation about how safe should a cop play it. In both of these movies, Speed and The Fugitive, the cop that we're following, the cop that we like, uh, are confronted with the idea of what do you do when there's a hostage situation? You know, and Keanu was like, you shoot the hostage. And you're like, what? But then he does. And in this movie, Tommy Lee Jones is like, well, you just trust that you're a really, really good shot and you shoot the guy who has a gun to your partner's head. And that is a scene that does not get played for heroism, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Like Tommy gets the shot off, but the director carries that scene forward, has a beat where he like then watches that man's partner like interrogate him about this and be really let down by his answers. I can't hear anything. My my ear is... Uh... I can't believe he did that. You think I should have bargained with that guy? Yeah. I do. He could have missed. He could have killed me. Yeah. How bad's that ear? It's terrible. I'm going to have permanent hearing damage. Let me see it. Can you hear what I'm saying now? Yeah. And what I found really fascinating about, like, the cinematography in that scene is, you know, Tommy Lee Jones has that line, which could be delivered with, like, a, I don't bargain, you know, and walk away, Mm -hmm. clap, clap, clap. But the movie doesn't let that happen. The movie stays with his partner's face as Tommy walks away. And you know that that answer did not satisfy his partner and that his partner doesn't forgive him and his partner's not like, okay, bro, we're cool. And it never gets brought up again, you know, but it's there in the film. And I thought that was interesting. Well, it definitely is about who he is, who Tommy Lee Jones is. Like Tommy Lee Jones is a hunting dog in this movie. When you watch him, 90% of the time, he is not making eye contact with whoever he's speaking to. Like when he enters into a scene, when he's walking through, he is surveying the land. He is that... um, that police dog, I shouldn't say hunting dog, a police dog, like he is working 10 steps ahead of everybody else. I don't think that he is soulless, though. And that's the really interesting distinction about him. Like the conversations, the way he communicates with his team, who are just all perfectly cast. I mean, I love that team. Obviously, they made a sequel just focusing on Tommy and that team. Uh, they added Robert Downey Jr. into the sequel, which is interesting. But um But the way that he jokes, like even at one point where he says, don't let him make fun of your ponytail, you know, like he's not just a robot. And I think this movie does an amazing job of having two heroes. They are 
they are partners. Like, they're, or they have the dynamic of a partner film. You know, it's like, do you like Riggs or Murtaugh better? It's up to you to decide. They're both heroes, you know, you know, in this lethal weapon world. You know, uh, they're both heroes in that film. And in this film, I am behind both stories. I want them both to succeed. Like, Tommy Lee Jones is not the enemy here. Like, he is just doing his job. And you want to see him do his job well and effectively. And I think that scene you just brought up, Amy, is a scene where he is as cocky as Keanu without being cocky. Like, he knew what he needed to do in that moment. He knew his partner's life was at risk. He knew that he couldn't afford to do anything other than that. And yes, it was an extreme action, but I also believe that he's been in those situations enough to understand, like, I don't bargain because it doesn't work out well. And that you don't his have... age adds something that Keanu didn't have? Yeah, I think he, I mean, there's, it's incredibly cocky what he says without the cocksureness of it that, you know, it's like the gum chewing. Like, I don't, I don't feel like he thinks he's a badass. It's like, I have to make the choice that I have to make. That's, you got to trust me on that. And you may not trust me, but I know what the fuck I'm doing. Like, and that's what I get from him. It's like, he's not a guy who's pulling his gun every five minutes and blowing everybody to bits. Like he's making very calculated, educated decisions to protect his team. That's the most important thing to him. But I think he's a touch heartless. I mean, he kills a guy in a woman's house. And then when the woman realizes the guy is dead and starts sobbing, he's like, shut up. And she does. And I was curious about that scene because it doesn't feel like that's played for laughs either. I feel like the scene is also like, that's a little harsh, Tommy. I 1 million percent agree with that. Like when I saw that, I was like, ooh, that doesn't sit well with me because the rest of his character is incredibly like he's open to being wrong. Like that one Mm -hmm. sequence where they sit around the table and he's like, all right. Tell me what we got. And the team figures it out. Like, he doesn't figure it out. But, like, he can be self-deprecating. Like, he... Oh, but then is... he claims that he knew. Well, but like, I well, think yeah, that... it was the L trade. But I think he was... <laughs> but I think he was doing that as a yeah. joke. I don't think... You know, and I think he was doing that as a joke to the room. Yeah. Like, and I and I like that. I like that as well. But you're right. That moment where he tells the woman to shut up felt odd because she wasn't a criminal. She wasn't doing anything wrong. I mean, she was harboring a fugitive... But besides that, you know, that was a pretty that was a pretty harsh. That, I would say that's the harshest moment for his character. I mean, I wonder if that is just a side effect of this film from what everybody says about the shooting of it. Not really having a script at all. You know, really? So this movie yeah. was. Oh, wow. Well, what Andrew Davis, the director, has said is that is that when people ask what David Tuohy's script contributed, he's like, he had the train crash, and that's all I'll say about that. He actually is like, and that's all I'll say about that. And it feels like, from what Tommy Lee will say on the set and stuff, I keep calling him Tommy Lee, and I'm like, that doesn't feel proper, because then I'm just thinking about the Motley Crue drummer. Yeah. But, like, they have said that on set, they basically made up most of their dialogue, that every day they'd show up and be like, okay, well, this scene has to go from point A to point B, and then they'd just work it out and then they would just shoot it and then they'd move on. So well, I wonder if that was like an in-the-moment decision that maybe doesn't hold together for us 
later. I mean, not that a character has to be, not that a person is like always the same person. Like, I'm sure I have moments of being a dick and like then hopefully moments of being less of a dick. And like, I, it, part of well, me doesn't you, want to demand that much consistency from a character because I like messy humanity. But at the same time, it, it, it sticks out. It's weird. I also can understand that in that moment, to break down this moment, he has just killed a human being. And again, yeah. it doesn't seem like Tommy Lee Jones is known for killing human beings. He's known for tracking and getting his man. Uh, but there is a there is something to that where you go, he just shot someone. He is in an emotional place. There's a woman screaming and in that moment, he's like, shut up. Like, it's it's not like he's interviewing her, you know, interrogating her and telling her to shut up. Like, he's walking through and and I, there could be like, just like, it could be a man, a woman, whatever. It's like, could be crying. It's just like, just shut up. Like, just give me my, give me a moment here. Like, he's clearing space. I'm not defending the action, but I also see how in that moment to hear that, like almost like an alarm, like a car alarm going off. It's, you know, it's, she's not appealing to him. You know, she's, she's in another room, just making a sound like she is an alarm going off in the morning. Now, granted, this situation is incredibly not an alarm, but I can see at least from that point of view, his harshness to that. Cause it's just noise to him. You know, I wonder if there's something in that, like we talked about in the speed that because some of Keanu's kind of harshest lines, you know, like, what's, what could stop that elevator from going down? The yeah. basement. I feel like they came from another script, um, another version of the script. So in the original script that Andrew Davis says he got, um, the one-armed man was hired by Gerard because Gerard was mad that Kimball had screwed up on the operating table with his wife. So Gerard worked the whole strings of the entire script. And of course, Andrew Davis was like, that is insane. And it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So he called his sister. His sister's a nurse. And he was like, what could a surgeon do that would get people really, really mad at him? And she came up with the pharmaceutical idea. And so he just used that. I mean, Andrew Davis says he never met David Toohey. That's so, so interesting. And this this is a movie that had gone through like 25 drafts, nine years of development hell. Every actor in the world was attached like Harrison Ford turned down Jurassic Park to do this, but they wanted, you know, Alec Baldwin and they wanted Kevin Klein. There were so many different variables here. Doesn't but, it feel like there's this whole shadow career of Alec Baldwin based on everything we hear he turned down? Well, I think there's a shadow career of a lot of great leading men because these scripts, you know, and and women too, like Halle Berry and Speed. Like there's, you know, when you're at a certain level, everything's probably being passed through you. So if it doesn't hit you in the right way, if you don't connect with the material, like you can have this lineup of incredible passes like Sean Connery, you know, was going to be Lawrence Fishburne's part in in the Matrix, you know, but he was like, I'm done. I don't know what this is. Or, you know, it's like there's so much. There's so much that makes a movie work and doesn't. And I would say why this movie works so well is just like speed there's a ticking clock on this movie. It's moving, it's moving, it's moving, it's moving. And they don't let it feel bloated. So maybe this idea that there wasn't that much of a script is a good thing because Harrison Ford barely speaks in this movie. Like if you really put it all together, like his speaking time is minimal. You know, he's reacting, 
He is running, he is going, he is thinking, he is working. And there's something really emotive about Harrison Ford in that space. I think his acting in the beginning when he is being interrogated is phenomenal. Just the way that he is, you see, I just thought that interrogation scene of seeing this person who just came home to find his wife dead and also wrestled with this attacker felt so vulnerable and scared and nervous way he's kind of touching his beard. He's out of breath. Like he is so the everyman. And I think you understand like why Harrison Ford had such a stellar career and still does in many respects. But like this is like prime Harrison Ford. Like he is incredibly vulnerable. We see ourselves in him, you know, maybe left to his own devices. He didn't pick a lot more dialogue because I think it makes the movie better. Every scene feels so, there's not a lot of fat. And I think that's the thing I was so impressed with. Like every scene has a reason for being that shows something from their character. And as someone who has, I, I got to do the show, The League, where we would know the beginning and the end of the scene um, we'd have plot points that we'd have to hit, but we could improvise our dialogue. You get so much more ownership over your characters. So the U.S. Marshals feel so much more realized. Tommy Lee Jones feels more realized. Like everybody feels like they're in their own character's skin and they're not just, there's not, they're not just doing long monologues or exposition dumps. They are just moving scenes forward. I don't know. There's something about this. Maybe the script didn't need a, a big script. Maybe it would have wrecked it. Yeah, I mean, I want to play that scene that you're talking about, because what struck me is that it's the first time in the film that we see Harrison talk in real time. Mm -hmm. You know, like he's silent in most of the present stuff up until that point, you know, like being taken out of his house, being put in a car, you know, mumbling really quietly at the cop station. He speaks a little bit in flashback, but we're not seeing like the, the past and the present combined to have him talk about what's happening now until this scene and it's like eight minutes into the movie financially you're not going to be hurting after this then are you i mean she was worth quite a bit of money are you suggesting that i killed my wife are you saying that i crushed her skull and that i shot her how dare you when I came home, there was a man in my house. I fought with this man. Uh -huh. He had a mechanical arm. You find this man. You find this man. How tall is he? How tall is he? from me. Oh, Jesus. Also, we're still watching the credits. The credits, like, take on yeah. forever. Like, this, this movie is, like, a 20th credits, possibly. Well, um, yeah, they they basically take a break for a long sequence and then they come right back when he gets on the prison yeah, bus. So like, yeah, I bet you wanted to know that executive producer, bro. We gotcha. <laughs> we gotcha. But yeah, no, to everything you're saying about Harrison, I mean, what jumps out about him is he's clumsy. You know, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of him in like the the tunnel chase sequence where he's in like the, the big sewer pipes. He's really imperfect. Like he stumbles and he falls. He looks scared and tired. Like he doesn't, look like he knows exactly what he's going to be doing five seconds from now, 10 seconds from now. He looks exhausted. I mean, he's sleeping under like bags of leaves, you know? Um, he gets hungry, which really popped out to me too, because this is just me. I, it's a thing running in the back of my head in every single action movie. I'm always like, when do they pee and when do they eat? 
Like, mm-hmm. and if I can't really answer those questions, I either have to buy in that I don't care or I can be a little annoyed. I, I, I toggle depending on how much the movie has set the tone for me to not care. Like, I don't care if they don't pee in Mad Max Ray Road, but I do care if they don't pee if like speed was like taking place in real time for like nine hours. You know, I would care. And right. so it, this is a movie where I feel like to see Harrison Ford break into a hospital room and then like steal a dying man's scrambled eggs and eat them like a wolf. I was like, thank you. I appreciate that you've included this because it all builds towards the idea of making Harrison Ford, as you're saying, a really vulnerable, relatable human hero, a human hero. I mean, he takes off his shirt and you're like, oh, nice abs. Like you have an excellent, excellent body, Harrison Ford, but it's not about his muscles and he's hiding them in like baggy shirts, Beige has an action movie hero ever worn so much beige because he's trying to disguise himself and look ordinary. I mean, action heroes, especially the way they are now, when every action hero has to do some sort of super like Marvel movie, except for Tom Cruise, like the one person who hasn't. And so they have to stay swole all the fucking time. They can never blend in and be like, oh, I just work here as a janitor. But Harrison Ford has a body where he can just work here as a janitor. And I find it so limiting the muscles because I want I want all of our Marvel heroes to be able to play janitors should the need arise. And none of them can. Well, to me, I was thinking about this film and I was like, you know, if I was going to recast it, I would put like Paul Rudd in it, you oh, know, yeah. in a way of like, you know, he has that ability to kind of walk that line too of just being accessible but you know like there's like Harrison Ford does make some comedy moments here like his looks and I I love how he kind of adopts an accent when he is a janitor like he speaks in ways that you know make him a little bit more mumbly or confusing and you know it's to to make him harder to track, like those little details are really fun for me. Well, um, I mean, what he's doing, which I think really is interesting, is he is going from a one percenter, you know, like the top mm-hmm. surgeon of this hospital, really famous, then maybe not famous to most people, but famous in his world, renowned guy, to putting on the life of, you know, a working class person in Chicago and in a lot of ways, like an immigrant or a minority, you know, he moves into a Russian mm-hmm. house. He mumbles fake Russian to get people mm-hmm. to like, leave him alone. He takes the badge of like somebody named what Ruiz, I think mm-hmm. he, he makes himself look like a person who gets ignored and the, and the things that he chooses. I think this movie is making a statement about who gets ignored and what areas get overlooked that, you know, they're not looking for him so much because he's on trains, like trains are public, but he's hiding on trains and they're not looking there because I guess they're not thinking he's like, I don't know, doing a poor, like there's a, they're, they're what they're like driving around in cars looking for him in nice areas and he's on trains. Well, even the way that you first see him back in Chicago when he blends in with like all the homeless people under the bridge or whatever he's whatever the underpass he's under, like he looks he's in the same color palette as, you know, he he's able to blend in. Um, yeah, so is... I think there's something in here about the people who go ignored. Yeah, I think there's a yeah. mild statement happening. Yeah. And I do think I don't know how much thought was put into it, especially now that you're saying that there was no script. But Harrison Ford is kind of a dick when you first meet him. Not like a um not like a um bad guy, but there is a cocky energy to him walking around that party, the way he carries himself, the way that um, you know, friendly, but you also get this air of 
wealth. He has this bravado that he loses for most of the film. And I think that that, again, is a great acting choice. You watch him literally become this other person. Like, he understands it. Like, he's not just playing it. Like, he is emotionally in that state as well. Like, you know, he loses... Once he is arrested and goes to court, like, that veneer is dropped. You know, he never kind of gets that back. Even at the end when he confronts the doctor in the pharmaceutical convention, like, he's not um, extremely confident. Like, it's not like he is like, listen up, everybody, here's my monologue. It's clunky. It's it's low status. And uh, it's it's really wonderful, even when he's confronted by Tommy Lee Jones. Like, that that fear that he gets before he jumps out of the tunnel, like, you feel that. And I think that there's a, a skittishness to him. If we're talking about Tommy Lee Jones being a hunting dog, uh, he is definitely the rabbit. You know, mm-hmm. in this movie, like, and they and they play it physically on their faces. They both play those uh, those animals. Uh, That's true. He is rabbit colored. I mean, everything about mm, him yeah. is rabbit dressed. There's a few things that I really want to talk about that you like brushed on. Like one, I want to play actually that that final confrontation scene with him and you know his the bad mm-hmm. guy who's played by uh, Jerome Crabbe, who's like. His name is Dr. Charles Nichols, which breaks my heart because my dad was Charles Nicholson. I'm like, oh, it's like the closest my dad has come to having like his character name on screen. Uh, uh, But like he has that confrontation scene that you're describing. What I love about it is, I mean, I actually don't care about any of the medical stuff in here. I do like evil medical corporations. I mean, sure, who doesn't? They're terrible and I like them being made fun of. But it all seems so complicated that the movie itself doesn't seem to really care. And I feel like you hear that in the way Harrison Ford is like, whatever it is. You switch the samples and the pathology reports. Did you kill Lentz too, huh? Can we get some security in here, please? Did you? He falsified his research. So that our DU-90 could be approved and Devlin McGregor could give you Provasic. All right, it's all over, folks. Let's just uh, stay calm. But all of that is like, whatever. We're not really here for that. You know, I think we're here for the chase. We don't really care about the solution. But here's what I'm going to say, Amy. I think this story is incredibly compelling. Like, because... It's incredibly simple. It's just sort of like a drug company has a drug that is going to make them billions of dollars. And the only person standing in their way is a doctor not even trying to do what's right. He is just forwarding over the samples. Like, he doesn't seem like he is trying to take down the company. He doesn't even really understand the company. He's just, oh yeah, they were on this drug. I gave him the liver samples and that was it. Like he's uncovering it as well. I like the idea of the big bad being a big corporation. Like it To me, it's, it's more damning because it's not like, oh, he did somebody wrong and they're after him. It's like, no, no, he is a cog in a machine that is going to prevent a company from becoming a multi-billion dollar corporation. And I think we've seen this in, in big pharma. You, you like, that's a, it's an interesting bad guy because he's not even a hero. He's not even a hero. He's, you know, it's not like, oh, he spoke up and now they're coming after him. Just did his job. 
just simply did his job. He doesn't seem to be aware of what he even did, which I love even more. You know, him and the other doctor who gets killed in the car accident. Uh, killed or murdered, I wonder. I mean, Well, I mean, I, yeah. yeah, he's murdered. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. But I, I like that you're right. Now I'm picturing like this movie as a series of nesting dolls. It's like the corporation thinks of him as nothing, but he is a something compared to the person that he pretends to be in order for nobody to find him. Like he keeps getting smaller and smaller. Yeah. And it, you're right. I appreciate that. It's not like I saw them burn these documents. Like he, the fact that he has no idea what the fuck is going on or why for most of the movie is kind of fun. Yeah. And to me, this is a podcast. I think one of the things about this that's so compelling is, wow, we are, and I said at the top of the episode, we are living in this story. We love these stories. Like, we want these stories. Like, this is this is a serial series, you know, in many ways. It's like, okay, this person was wrongly accused because he, you know, he didn't falsify documents or whatever the issue is. Uh, it's so compelling. And I think this movie, because it lacks a lot of 90s specifics, feels incredibly timeless. Like, there's nothing in this movie that feels like, that dates it in any way. Um, and I think Speed feels like that to a certain extent too, you know, and and I probably could put Die Hard in there too in the sense that it's much more about the cat and mouse and you don't need elaborate computers or, you know, it's they're not trying to do, like he didn't get into like a VR filing cabinet of, you know, pharmaceutical materials. Like he literally is like working with that one man uh, in the, in the hospital, the, the, uh, the guy in the morgue, I guess, or the, you know, one of the corners and, you know, they're, they're pulling out all old slides. Like he's piecing it together in a way that uh, feels like, oh, I, I imagine most of these records are still kind of kept like this. It doesn't seem, I don't know. Uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at how timely it still feels without it feeling like a dated film. Like, this is not like Shawshank, where it's like, oh, it took place in the 50s. No, this like took place in the 90s, but it could take place right now. It doesn't feel uh, special to a time period in any No, way. it doesn't. It, I, actually, the word serial really jumped out at me that you said, because I was thinking that this movie is like Brooks Brothers' Indiana Jones, Mm. Because Indiana Jones was structured to be a throwback to the old 1930s serials. If you just watched a bunch of them in a row, you know, there's like a cliffhanger every 10, 15 minutes. The action is propelling. You're always like, how is he going to get out of this escape? He can't get out of this one. What's he going to do now? And that is exactly how The Fugitive is structured, too. It has it's just the exact same rhythm. Like, how is he going to get out of this handcuffed bus? How is he going to get out of this like? This like um, being stuck in a tunnel with a helicopter at the end. How's he going to get out of this like giant tube over like a waterfall? And it's it's literally basically the same thing, just mapped on top of it. Well, Except that Indiana Jones chose to do the adventure, and this guy's just like, ah, oh, fuck. How do I get out of this? Well, let me throw down my theory to you. Okay. I think this movie isn't modeling itself after that. I think this movie is modeling itself after North by Northwest, and I think. It might be a better movie than North by Northwest. Oh, I mean, it's been like a while since we covered that on season one. Yeah. We, we asked that, right? That was gone from our Hitchcocks. Um, I'd have to look again, but it was one that we really, yeah, yeah, we really spoke about because we felt like so many other films took from it. Um, and maybe it's not the best Hitchcock because we had our, our Hitchcock, uh, you know, one film per director, which I know many people are upset about, but that's a premise. Uh, but okay. I do think. Get mad yeah. at me. It's my fault. 
I'm no, mean. we're we're on we're on the same page here. When we come to T two and Titanic, we'll have to oh, really God, get into stop. it. Oh God, stop! But uh, but there is something about this movie that felt very Hitchcockian to me, more than you know, more than Die Hard, more than Speed, more than a lot of action movies. It, this felt very much like a old school thriller, and I haven't seen that that much. You know, that's fair because like in North by Northwest, like Cary Grant is wrongfully accused of something that he has no idea what's happening. He's just like the wrong guy at the wrong time, at the wrong place, goes on the run in a series of ordinary looking suits. Yeah. Um, and has to do crazy escapes, like running from a giant plane across a cornfield. Um, and this movie doesn't have the love interest, which it thought about having i hear i hear like they had well him they shot scenes with julianne moore and then they were yeah. like he's mourning his wife what are we doing we can't have this in here it, it screws up everything which is yeah. why you're like julianne moore is here and now she's gone like what she's not gonna come back okay but that's um, what i mean this movie is lean it doesn't yeah. get caught up in all that bullshit like the movie is who killed my wife why did they kill my wife that's his goal and the other goal is I must find this man. And and there are little hiccups along the way, but nothing, it, every scene, everything that we learn is to just answer those two questions. We're not existing outside of that. And I love it for it. And I think that that's what you need to create like a tense thriller, like pare down on everything else. We'll get our characters through little details. And I think that that's what they both do. Like we find out a lot about them without either one of them monologuing. Like we never hear Harrison Ford go, do you know how hard it was for me to sit at that trial and listen to them talk mm -hmm. about my wife? Or you don't hear Tommy Lee Jones go, I'm part of this because, you know, back when I was a kid, uh, my father was... Uh, Ran away from my mother and I could never find him. And I'm always want to get the, <laughs> get the man who runs away. Like we don't need to know it. Like they're just good at their, their, we get it. We understand why both of them are doing their job. We don't need them to be superhuman. And I think that like North by Northwest has a similar thing. It's like, we're just boom. The pot starts. We're in it. I love the way the opening breaks apart. Like we've all seen the coming home and the murder, the way that they unravel that opening through the opening with the flashbacks, with the dream sequences, the, the way that they they kind of unspool oh, no. it uh, is actually, I thought, incredibly compelling because we also all know the story. It's like the same way I feel about Spider-Man or Batman. Like if you're watching an origin story, it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Get, uh, like the most of the movie going audience is on board. We understand he Harrison Ford did not kill his wife. It's not even up for debate. Uh, so let's just get through it. Like, How much do we need to see? How much of that? And so I think that they position all that information so economically. We get through the trial, the court case, the attack, and we see the little bits when we need to. But it's not like a, uh, you know, it, it lets the movie just rocket from the, from, from the get-go. Well, it's all distilled to that one interaction, to like the seven-second interaction that Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones have when they're in like, what I keep calling that a sewer and a tunnel. What What is the giant pipe? Like, what is the word I should be using for this? The giant pipe that leads to a waterfall. You know, I, I, like, I think a sewer, right? Or maybe an outlet. I don't know. Outlet, yeah, because yeah, the water seems clean. Yeah, I mean, there's a yeah. lot of stuff in that water. I mean, I, yeah. it looks like it was being purified after it falls out of that 
They, like, I feel like the water, is that dirty water that's going to get purified by the dam? I don't, I don't know. know. The dam looks clean. Uh, okay, It well, does look uh, clean. For the purposes of a, a argument, I'll call it a water pipe. Or is, that, is a water okay, pipe a yeah. word for a, a water bong? pipe, yeah. Am I, is, sure. that a, is that a bong, though? I'm just going to call it a bong. Okay. So they're in the giant bong. And they're facing each other. And you just have that complete distillation clearer than any of the water in the in in the tubes in the water bong where they just express what they want i didn't kill my wife i don't care can i just say the way that tommy lee jones delivers the line i don't care is to me what won him an oscar unjustly um, I don't think he should have won. We can get into that later. Okay. But um, I don't care. Like he, there's a bazillion ways to say that. I don't care. But he says it so offhand in a way that it's like the most unexpected line reading of that line. I don't care. Like it just, it's so casual. It's like, do you want mustard or mayonnaise on your burger? I don't care. Like that's how he says it. And it's so offhand that it just becomes to me triply true. Well, to me, it's like, he's like, you're talking about something that that doesn't involve me. My my job isn't about if you're guilty or innocent. My job is that you're running. I gotta catch it. Like like, and it it does something that I think is really smart, which is it does not make this chase personal. It is just another job. That's it, and and. That's why we can root for Tommy Lee Jones. He's not doing anything but his job. And and he's doing it well. And he should be doing it well. Like, like that to me connects us to him in a way that, you're right, I think that that's the iconic scene from the movie, that memorable scene, you know. Uh, but it goes against everything that we know of action movies. Like, that's a scene where we're going to monologue I got to tell you, this is where I'm at, you know, like, well, I got to tell you, I'm here, blah, 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 blah. And you have two actors who I think are known not for talking that much, Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. Mm-hmm. And if they go there and not they go, okay, movies, well, this is... not to the press, not to anybody, they can help. Exactly. And if you go to this scene, you go, all right, we got to shoot this scene today. What do we need to do? Well, I need to tell him <laughs> that I'm innocent and I need to be like, it doesn't make a difference. That's not my job. And they... They just if they distilled it to those two things, I didn't kill my wife and I don't care. They're fucking geniuses like they are straight up geniuses. What a beautiful like you don't need anything else. And I think we live in a time where we overwrite and we over explain and mm-hmm. we over uh, sympathize with everybody. Like, yes, they make a couple moves here to make you see that Harrison Ford's a good guy. Like he doesn't leave somebody for dead in the uh, in the in the in the bus after it, no, you know, or that little kid, he like risks his his safety yes. to make sure that the kid is properly diagnosed. Like these save the cat moments for him aren't even really truly necessary because he, like, we don't need to understand that he's a nice guy, right? Uh, we know he's a nice guy. We know he didn't kill his wife, but it it's you know icing on top. Whereas I think going back to my thing about the cops, the only two people that are or three, I should say, that are constantly kind of lying and being a little bit more manipulative and a lot more talky are the two Chicago cops and the cop who was the um, 
the uh, bus driver or or in the bus who's like, oh, yeah, I, I saved him and uh, he's mm-hmm. dead. And, and oh, wait, what about this? You know, it's like the everybody else does so much more talking or fumfering. And, you know, well, you know, we got to mm-hmm. go over here. We got to do it. Don't tell us what we're doing. I'm going to give you a bottle of scotch for whoever gets this guy. Like, you mm-hmm. know, they they have so much more posturing to themselves and they are and the uh, ultimate villain too like let me tell yeah. you blah, blah 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 i'll talk to you about it. yeah he showed up blah 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 yeah they're playing like this game of chess like i mean i love the way that tommy i i like whatever he does it's like a beautiful i was i was like so in awe of it like the way he just goes hey dr so-and-so can i talk to you for a second like he's got like such a funny like gamemanship to his detective work it's very columbo-esque like oh and one more thing and he goes get me that man he lied to me you know like it's like there's this like there there are just like it's it's i don't know there's there's a there's a joy to him in a sense where i i disagree with your initial assessment that he's like heartless i think he's got it all he's just like okay yeah go ahead i don't mean not heartless not heartless just say that that exists in here that exists and it's interesting yeah i just think that he's like he's 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 going to protect the people that he loves and the people that he loves are that team. That's the people he'll be vulnerable to. Those are the people that he will be goofy with. Um, And, you know, and I think you have these like moments where he's got such a great poker face, even when Joe Pantoliano is like, that guy's bad. He's like, oh, he's bad news. Get keep up. You know, like they are. There's so much unspoken between them. I don't know. I just, I love this performance. I disagree with you that he shouldn't have gotten an Oscar for it. it well, it's one of those Marissa Tomoe. because of yeah. everybody he's against. Okay, who's he against? He's against Rafe Fiennes from Schindler's List. Ooh, okay. Uh-huh. And this one broke my heart for a long time. Uh, like years. I was, I've been mad about this since I was a child. He beat out Leonardo DiCaprio on What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Mm. And I will say those two performances, I think are better than this. They have more to do, but it's great. Like this is a wonderful Tommy Lee Jones performance, but he can do this every day. And I think especially for Leonardo DiCaprio, that performance was special. Well, I agree. I love Gilbert Grape. And I will say that, you know, funnily enough, because that's a word, uh, you know, funnel, maybe that's what that thing is like a water. Oh, funnel. I like that. Uh, But it would have, but wouldn't a funnel be like more uh, pointed? pointed at the end? Yeah. I guess. Um, I mean, I've it. Yeah. I don't know. Apparently, Tommy who Lee Jones. Who is an aqueduct like, expert who listens to us? Isn't I'm sure we'll have a lot of people on the Discord telling yeah. us exactly what we got wrong here. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones did tell Joey Pants, uh, it's not like anyone's going to win any awards from this film. Uh, <laughs> but it was nominated for seven Academy Awards, three Golden Globes. And, uh, you know, Jones uh, ironically won the Academy Award and the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. And Harrison Ford was nominated for Golden Globe for Best Actor, but lost to Tom Hanks in Philadelphia, which makes me believe that also Denzel Washington must have been nominated for Best Supporting in that category, too, most likely. No, I don't think he was. Oh, wow. Interesting. Um, But I will say this. There is something about the Academy Awards and a movie like this that is an adult film that people feel connected to. Like it is, this is a shining, this is the best, I mean, the best Tommy Lee Jones. I I think this is the best Tommy Lee Jones. I really loved him in, and it's funny, we've done two Tommy Lee Jones in summer blockbusters. I don't necessarily think of him as a summer blockbuster star, but this feels to me, and I may have said this for Men in Black too, there is something that captures his uniqueness in both of these films it's like you love this character. You love this guy. You know this 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 kind of tough, uh, been through it 
type of guy. He feels like he's been this age forever. Forever. Uh, like you see you pictures know, of him young and he's startlingly hot. And you're like, whoa, but it's a different person. I mean, are they using it. a lot of makeup on his like on his, I don't want to say pockmarks, but he seems very filled in here. And I couldn't yeah. tell if that was makeup or young because there is something smoothed out about his face. I wonder. I mean, I do think he doesn't do Men in Black if he doesn't do The Fugitive. You know, like I right. think The Fugitive makes him more, he's more of a bad guy, I think, in movies up until this point. I think mm-hmm. this adds like the kind of lovable patina to him that he needs to do like a kid's movie. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, I like or he is getting offered this part because, look, you know, Men in Black comes out in 97. This comes out in 93. I think that once, you know, he establishes himself, like people want to see him do this role a bunch more. I mean, you were talking about uh, Andrew Davis. You know, he directed Under Siege and Tommy Lee Jones was the bad guy there. So to go from the bad guy and Under Siege to then essentially the good guy in The Fugitive, you have a director who trusts this actor and goes, I know he can deliver this this performance yeah. here. Like, you know, it, like he sees he sees what he's capable of. And I do think it it begins to create this other other door for him where he is a lovable curmudgeon. I don't know. You yeah. know, I, I, you know, it's grandpa. Like, no. Yeah. He he, I don't know if he ever, does he ever get full? Yeah. He does get full grandpa later, but not. I mean, yeah, but you know, those are those yeah. movies that I feel like just yeah. come straight to video and you're like, Oh, Eric idols in this What What's going on. But I, I mean, know. like if you, but if you look at this, like this era for him, you know, he's in JFK in 91. Then he goes to under siege in 92. And then it's, uh, Oliver Stone made another movie, heaven and earth, which he's in and the fugitive, uh, and then it goes to like the client, natural born killers, Cobb, Batman Forever, Volcano, Men in Black, U.S. Marshals, the sequel to this, Small Soldiers, Double Jeopardy, Rules of Engagement, Space Cowboys, Men in Black 2, The Hunted, The Missing. Like all of a sudden he just is in this zone pretty much from like 91 to 2000. He is running the game, like really 2003, he's kind of running the game. I will say one of my favorite Tommy Lee Jones performances uh, is the three burials of, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this name, uh, Melchitas Estrada. Have you ever seen that movie? You know, I actually have never seen that and I've always heard it was great. It's phenomenal. It is a phenomenal movie and it is, uh, I really, really loved it. It's really cool. So check that out. Uh, produced by Jean-Luc Besson. So wait, so what of those movies on that list did he have his head shaved for? Because this is the speech that he gave when he got his Oscar. Uh, my thanks to the uh, Academy for the very uh, uh, finest, uh, the greatest uh, award that any actor can ever receive. Uh, the only thing a man can say at a time like this is, I am not really bald. <laughs> I believe that that's Cobb, which was directed by Ron Shelton, and because he really does the full aging on that movie. And I have a feeling that probably at that point, maybe oh, I'm going to make a big, I'm, 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 I'm jumping in. I'm saying that that's what it is. I, I think Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> okay. Well, then let me ask you this. Then why did he decide to do U.S. Marshals, the sequel to The Fugitive, which I just have to play this little bit of the trailer because it made me laugh. Escape. A cross daring escape. Prisoner unaccounted for. Mark Roberts. A daring escape. A cross-country manhunt. No one had seen anything like it. I have. 
All right. So first of all, you don't know me at all if you don't think that the minute the fugitive was over, I popped in uh, U.S. Marshals. I loved U.S. Marshals as did a kid. Did June stay awake for that? She did not. Uh, but that's okay. Um, I loved U.S. Marshals as a kid. But then when I watched the trailer, I was like, God damn it. They just made the same movie. Like, I thought the cool thing for U.S. Marshals is make him go up against a straight up villain. Like, now you can do it. Because basically... Why not continue on with these characters? I love mm-hmm. these characters. I love this team. Like yeah. it's a great it's it's mission impossible as far as like teamwork is con- you know concerned with uh, a fugitive on the run, but they make Wesley Snipes like this ex-CIA government agent who has like all these like special powers and instead of like a a, a train accident and a bus accident it's like oh they just basically duped the fugitive and it actually to me bummed me out because I'm like I don't want him to chase another <laughs> I don't want him to chase another innocent man. Like now you can make it like where it's, it is all on him. Like, uh, you know, there's something more interesting about that. I I don't know why, but obviously no one involved in the first film came back uh, besides the actors. And I'm sure it was for a gigantic payday, but don't you want to see those U.S. Marshall characters more? I mean, I did. I did want to see them more. I love them all. I love that team. I mean, I would like what kind of rubbed me the wrong way about just the trailer and I should know better than to judge people by the trailer but I think the scenes in the trailer prove out what I'm gonna say is it looks like they made the dumb action movie that we're complimenting it for not doing like I saw like images of Wesley Snipes like swinging on a super vine and landing on a train and I was like what like I liked that Harrison Ford looks scared as hell to jump and now Wesley Snipes is like I'm a magic spy I can do anything and I looked up some reviews of US Marshals because it did not get good reviews um, and it said, uh, that here, Tommy Lee Jones's character has only a token resemblance to the character who doggedly pursued Kimball and the fugitive as reinvented here. Gerard is a generic action hero. Most of the quirks that made him interesting and earned Jones and Oscar are absent with a few minor rewrites. John McClane from the diehard movies could have been plugged into this role. Yeah, I just, it was a bummer because again, I hadn't watched it. I remember enjoying it when I saw it. Uh, cause I was a big Wesley Snipes fan. Uh, but yeah, I just think it's, I don't know. I want, I want to justify that that's a great idea for a sequel. Like the same way that I think that aliens is a great idea for yeah. a sequel. I was like, oh, this is a great way to kind of continue this story. Like we don't the need knives to. Out world. Yeah. It could work. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, cause it is, he's an interesting character, but maybe it's overwritten. Maybe it's. You know, I mean, they literally do the same monologue. The end, the the outhouse, hen house. He just changes the specifics. Like, Wait, he's like the Walmart, the Kmart. What does he say? Yeah. The, the oh, H-mart. yeah. All right, gentlemen, we're going to divide up and search every house, hospital, hotel, back road, and backwater for Mr. Mark J. Roberts. I mean, there you go. They, there you go. I mean, there it is. It's it's essentially. It's like I don't know if that monologue is what makes him. Uh, you know, an interesting character. Okay, so you've proven your love for this whole genre. Does that mean that you saw wrongfully accused? In a world of culture and refinement, (laughs) among people of taste and greeting... Your dog certainly has a surprised look on his face. Well, that's because you're looking in his butt. Oh, then he's certainly not going to enjoy that uh, treat that I just fed to him. A man of passion will be framed... Lauren? You're not Lauren? By a one-armed, one-legged, one-eyed man. Oh, 
My God. I mean, you know, I am a big Leslie Nielsen fan and I stopped at a certain point when they became like this. Like this is this is like the Silence of the Hams uh, Leslie Nielsen movies. That I, 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 I checked out. I checked out at this point. I'm sorry. It's fine. I haven't seen it either. But when I from that whole trailer it just looks like he gets hit in the head the whole time. I mean, that that's what these movies devolved into. I mean, there's a great Titanic parody in there. Um, but what's so funny about getting hit in the head that many times? Like, I mean, who look, laughs the, at that joke more than once? One of the failed human giant sketches, not failed, but one of the ones that we never did was, uh, you know, there's always this like era of rom-coms or like pretty girls got hit in the head or fell down a lot. You know, a lot of mm-hmm. people are always are falling down. And, and we had this whole sketch written where, she keeps on falling down and stumbling and being cute. And then like the, it would cut from her being cute into a doctor's office and the doctor being like, uh, you have a brain tumor that is very significant and you are going to die. Like that was the reason why she was so clumsy. Uh, we never shot that, but I always wanted to do that trailer that just revealed that the reason why they're so clumsy or getting hit a lot is because of a, a, a terrible brain tumor. But I want to talk about this movie also in as far as like the gold standard of both these movies had sequels, Speed and The Fugitive. I think The Fugitive approached their sequel smarter than Speed did, ultimately, even though they both pretty much copied the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, the copying. But, it really is the copying instead of the reworking. You're exactly right. If they just yeah, thought about you, it for like 10 more minutes, they could have come well, up with a good movie. It's like you already have the team. You got yeah. this great team. Just put them on a cool mission. Um You know, it, like we tune in every week to watch CSI for that. I mean, you um, actually, you, I think you do see like... Yeah, the between between the Fugitive One and the, I'll just call it the Fugitive Two, like Mission Impossible comes out. So then now they're competing with Mission Impossible. I guess yeah. There's a lot there. I mean, but pound for pound, and I love like uh, Joe Morton and Speed and, and Jeff Daniels we talked about. But this movie is stacked. Some of my favorite actors doing like their peak roles. I, you know, I, I would like this is the Harrison Ford that I think about probably the most. Like this, like you know, it's. Past Indiana Jones, I mean, even though he goes back to Indiana Jones, but it's like this other version of Harrison Ford where I think he is that we really are into him. That's not like superhero, um, you know, has very much John McClane elements to it. Tommy Lee Jones, we talked about already. It's great. Uh, Joe Pantoliano, I love him. Uh, you know, there. I just love the supporting players here across the board. You have people like you have people like Jane Lynch as a doctor in this movie, and you have Neil uh, Neil Flynn who from Scrubs in the middle. Like you have all these like, great like faces popping up throughout the whole film. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jane Lynch said that Harrison Ford taught her something really important in their scene because her character was just written to be like, "What? I'll give you what? What's happening?" Mm-hmm. And so when they were shooting her reaction shots, she just had her mouth open. You know, in like the pantomime of, I don't understand. Yeah. And he closed her mouth. He was like, never do that. You'll look really dumb on camera. And so she learned how to like look confused or interested without having her mouth open. Oh, that's so interesting. I love that. And I, I, I like that. I like that tactical I bestow upon you, this little gift. Yeah. Uh, there is just some great, uh, great, great performances. And I will say that, you know, as much as I've been ripping on the detectives, like, uh, you know, uh, Ron Dean who plays one of the Chicago cops is equally great. Like I was like, is he actually a real cop? Because there are moments in there where I'm like, did they just like pluck somebody from the Chicago police? No, he's a character actor who's been in like, you know, film for like three decades. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it just it was like a beautifully cast movie.
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, but here's where I show my own ignorance. Mm-hmm. I did not know until we were getting right into this episode that The Fugitive is based on the dreaded initials of IP. Did, oh, yes. I did no, not know course. that this was like a yes. huge TV show. And Wait, so the, really? The, no. How Whoa, Amy. That? I watched, I watched Mr. Giant Ed. Show. I never watched The Fugitive. I didn't know about it. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, I'm fascinated that you didn't know this. Okay. Yeah. I don't know how I didn't know this. I mean, here's the credits. If it rings any like bells in anybody else's head about like being at your grandpa's house and getting babysat, I had no idea. The Fugitive. A QM production. Starring David Jansen as Dr. Richard Kimball, an innocent victim of blind justice, falsely convicted for the murder of his wife. Reprieved by fate when a train wreck freed him en route to the death house. Freed him to hide in lonely desperation, to change his identity, to toil at many jobs. Freed him to search for a one-armed man he saw leave the scene of the crime. Freed him to run before the relentless pursuit of the police lieutenant obsessed with his capture. But no, so I didn't realize that this movie is pure IP because like the finale of The Fugitive, they took this premise of the doctor on the run, stretched out for like 120 episodes. Mm -hmm. So it was really about like the detours and the people he met and the jobs he had and like hiding throughout the way. And when they finally like capped the show, it was the most watched episode of TV of all time, all time. Like the second part of the finale, they estimate that 78 million people watched the closing minutes of The Fugitive. I mean, that number held until like MASH. I think the closing number of MASH finally beat it. Wow. But I did some math because I was like, okay, so 78 million people knew about The Fugitive, not me because I'm an idiot. So I tried to compare like if then The Fugitive had more of a fan base in the 90s among people who remembered the TV show and some people who didn't, or if it was like bigger in the 60s when it came out. And this is like an inexact science. But what I calculated is that domestically, The Fugitive made $183.8 million, you know, which is good. And it made like double that abroad. Um, The average ticket price in 1993 Averages to like $4.14. So that way you can kind of assume that the number of people who saw The Fugitive in America was 44.4 million is the number I came up with, which is 30 million less than the number of people that they think watched The Fugitive on TV. I don't know why I thought that was interesting to do. I think I just really missed doing math, but I was curious about like the staying power of a 30-year-old franchise. And that also made me realize we don't get Mission Impossible probably without The Fugitive because well, they're just pulling another old TV. I mean, Tom Cruise was trolling for like TV properties he thought would make a good movie. 
Well, and I think that The Fugitive always had a great hook. I mean, and a hook that you could tell in a, in a very short, uh, you know, in a film. It's very translatable. Uh, but I always knew about it because the specific was my, you know, this man's wife was killed by a one-armed man. That was the that was the hook in the TV show, too. It was a very specific thing. So I remember that from a kid. But I want to talk about Roy Huggins, who created The Fugitive. Roy Huggins is a TV legend. He created Maverick, uh, 77 Sunset Strip, The Fugitive. He worked with uh, Stephen J. Cannell, you know, to create, uh, you know, things like The Rockford Files, uh, The Virginian, uh, Beretta. Like, he he is, like, the in many respects, like the private detective mastermind of television. Like, you know, he, he, he had a great eye for this. He was a novelist who uh, got into Hollywood and just was behind some of some of the biggest shows. Uh, So I thought it was really interesting that, you know, his work, people have brought it back in different ways. Like Maverick was reinvented by Richard Donner uh, as a vehicle with James Garner and Mel Gibson playing the role of Maverick. You know, the Rockford Files has been something that's been bandied about for a long time. People have tried to figure it out, myself included, like how to make the Rockford Files into something that could be uh, a movie or a TV show uh, because they love it so much. I think it's, uh, again, all about finding the right person to be in the right roles here but like this like he's created these timeless stories it's it's very rare to have something like that you know to have somebody who has that kind of uh grip on telling a story that works in the 1950s all the way to now i mean i wonder i i went searching for negative reviews of the fugitive could barely find any because when this movie came out everybody loved it but the one negative review i found Seemed like it was a negative review because somebody had loved the TV show so much. And they oh, were such a fan of the TV show that they thought that this film didn't compare. And so that is an interesting way that I think IP can kind of bite you on the ass, maybe, as a film. is like, yes, people might know it, but if they're comparing you to something that's written by a novelist, who's apparently amazing, as you're saying, and has a novelist kind of sensibility from everything I've heard about the show since, like with its shaggy loops and stories and detours and ways of bringing in like gorgeous girls in every single episode, I guess that would seem like a hard thing to turn into like a two hour and 10 minute movie, at least for this critic. You know, I think that to me, the fugitive is so based on concept, not character, right? Like it, it's a great concept. So you can reinvent the concept. Whereas Rockford files, I think the reason why it's having a hard time getting going is, well, who is Rockford? You know, James Garner was a great Rockford. And, you know, it's so, I mean, one of my favorite things to talk about with Rockford is like his nemesis was Tom Selleck because Tom Selleck was like a sexy, cool detective and Rockford was kind of this shabby, you know, been to prison out of, you know, it's like you had to find the right character. Rockford is so intent on character where the fugitive is much more like the Hulk. The Hulk went from town to town. Bruce Banner went from town to town, you know, in the TV show. Like uh, you don't need... I, I think that that's the that's the trick to IP is finding IP that's not character dependent. But uh, again, like I talked about this when we talked about Galaxy Quest, I think one of the issues about that for me was playing like I had to talk to everybody about what they wanted from these characters because they were so committed to these characters. And it's mm-hmm. hard to like reinvent new characters. So I think something like Mission Impossible is a great example of that. Like, all right, so Peter Graves is ultimately the person we remember from that. But 
what does that even mean? Like, you know, you have to find the cooler idea, not just like, I loved blank as that. Like you have to, you have to get away from blank as that. And you have to go like, what is, what's going to allow us to cast a brand new thing? Which is why Mission Impossible kills off everybody in the opening. Which I think was one of the biggest mistakes. But that, but that was so dumb I I remember being, the reason why Mission Impossible, I think, has regained its success is because, and you and I will always debate that I don't think Mission Impossible 1 is the best of the franchise, but uh, uh, because they go, it's a mission, it's a team, and they kill the team, and it really is Tom Cruise working singularly for most of the film. Yes, Ving Rhames comes in, but what I think is so great about it is when you have a fucking team. Don't don't make it Mission Impossible just for the name, and then he's got to solve his own shit by himself. It's like fuck that. Give me I the mean, team. I like most of the Mission Impossibles, but I do think that to your point, like the problem is that every Mission Impossible has become like, oh no, he's been framed again, and I'm like, bro, you can't keep being framed. Sooner or yeah. later, your bosses really have to explain why they never believe you. Like that's crazy they just need to start trusting you or something has to change in the way you set up these stories i I agree yeah that's my digression and now you've got me sad at like the other waste of such a perfect like traveling franchise that could have happened which is just oh you know tom cruise is my boy as an actor but Mm -hmm. like the way that jack reacher just really got fucked up breaks my heart and i'll never get over it Yes. Uh, Jack Reacher, to me, I, I've read those books. I like those books. He was horribly miscast, yes. uh, in my opinion. And, yes. and But that's a, that's that's another... We've talked about this, right? Have yeah, we talked we've talked... Yeah. Yes, we've talked about it. Like, and did you agree I, with me that it should have been Michael Shannon? Oh, I don't remember you ever saying that, but that's a beautiful, wonderful choice. Yeah, Only absolutely. person it could be. Only person on this human yep. planet that it could have been is Michael choice. Shannon. That's a great choice. Yeah, like, I think that Tom Cruise, like, like, that's... IP that you anger the base like you know that's the because that that book is still like Jack Richard books are still being made and they're Mm -hmm. great and they're fun so it's like everyone who wants like if you can't get behind that it's a a good valiant idea to take because it's a cool idea it's a cool person but it's also a very hard person to kind of figure out who that is yeah terrific books but when you tell people every page that Jack Richard is like six six with hands like you know a pair of, I don't know, LeBron, LeBron James's Nikes. Like you can't put Tom Cruise in that role. You just can't. I just want to go back. We've been talking about this movie. We talk about, I think a lot about the acting, the action, the action, this movie, we haven't really broken down, but I just want to, before we like wrap up, wrap up, just say like, there are some fantastic sequences in here, like the train sequence, the bus sequence. Um, and they're very much, the movie is very top heavy, you know, um, as far as like big set pieces, but then we talked about the the scene in the in the uh, the funnel. Uh, but you know they managed to. This is a movie that manages to keep an action rhythm and pacing, but doesn't do giant giant set pieces. I would say even the chase in the tunnels is very basic. Like Tommy Lee Jones is slipping. He's slipping. Like they're holding on. It's like there it's it's every action sequence is very sloppy. I love a sloppy Harrison Ford fight scene. We get that in here. You know, he doesn't look like somebody who has thrown that many punches. So it it has yeah. like a, a nice uh, you know, there's something here, but there like I feel like the movie in many respects adds that scene in the middle where they go to the other Fugitive's house, I think you have to, that's a loose end that you want to find. And you also want to see Tommy Lee Jones be good at his job, but you add or it because Bruce you need. Or Bruce Lee at his job. 
Okay. Uh, uh, you see him. Uh, I think you add that scene in because like, like, oh, is there enough action here? But it's actually perfectly, it's a perfect like little, you know, a little nugget to give you before we go back into some more of the, the mental thriller of this film. It's, it's really well balanced. I think the action and, uh, it, but I never feel, I never feel like this movie slows down. Same way that speed is showing you that on a literal moving bus, like this movie doesn't slow down either. Like it gets, it gets going and the pace doesn't let up. No. And we're going to, you know, sound like a broken record again, but those two major, major stunts, you know, like the waterfall jump and the train are done like practical. They're not even done with miniatures. They actually like exploded a gigantic train to do that. I watched the whole making of that video. Yes. Um, mainly because like the guy who's explaining how they did it has just the best North Carolina accent. I mean, this is him talking. They put PVC pipe, a six inch PVC pipe under each tie to hold the ties up to more or less a level runoff. And what they did, it had charges of dynamite on each one of those PVC pipes. And when that engine reached a certain point, it set these off. And when it did that, it made the train wreck lean over to the side and which made it lean over and ran into the ditch. By the way, that video uh, ends with this. And I'm going to say pop quiz hot shot. What this video is about to announce is wrong. And do, does anybody know the right answer? Warner Brothers said that the full-scale staged railroad wreck was the first done in the United States by the movie industry. All previous train wrecks have been done with model trains. I was going to say it was, must have been the Charlie Chaplin movie that we watched, right? Or no. The other guy, the other guy. Oh, sorry. Yes, of course, not Charlie Chaplin. It was uh, Buster Keaton. Yes. The general, of course, the yeah, general yeah, yeah. That's yes. Famously detonated a real train. Famously, Warner Brothers going to be like, no, they didn't. No, they did. They did. Yes. They did. Warner Brothers did this. Like, what? Now I have to do math again. Oh God! Like seventy years before this. You know, I I do want to also just talk about this idea that you know we're talking about this idea of the adult thriller, and I made a very big point last week to say like speed is is a copy of a copy it's not as good as die hard it's not even as good as under siege whatever i all these things that i said but i also can't not acknowledge that the fugitive is also in the mold of this type of film that is uh incredibly popular at the time right there's movies like frantic right where you know uh harrison ford's wife is kidnapped right there's a jagged edge which is not exactly the same but a, like it has like a same you know, uh, element to it, like a presumed innocent. Like there's a lot of these, I'm wrongfully accused. There's even, you want to go forward and do that Michael Crichton movie with Michael Douglas and Demi Moore, uh, you know, disclosure where it's like, he was wrongly accused of sexual harassment. He's got to get like a lot of middle aged. Yeah. Yeah. Middle aged white dudes who can't catch a break. Like they, the society's against them. They have to go on the run. Hasn't it always just been that way? But I would argue, out of all those ones that I just mentioned, this one holds up. This one stands the test of time. I don't know if people are going back and watching Presumed Innocent or, uh, you know, The Firm or even Frantic. I I think that this movie feels most like, uh, you know, an outlier, like a Hitchcockian thriller, maybe made by a person who didn't even care to make this movie, ultimately. I think... You know, uh, Andrew Davis is sort of like, yeah, okay. You know, um, 
And maybe that that disdain for it, that idea of like letting the actors run with it is part of the success. Maybe it's the the idea that it's like this movie is grounded. You know, there's a reality here. You know, it's it's normal, smart people instead of super geniuses or even, you know, even Bruce Willis and Die Hard for as much as I love him. Most of us couldn't do what he does. And and Harrison Ford, I would argue most of us could do a lot of what he does. You know, like even when he's running from the train, it's not like he does anything special. He's running his ass off. He hides. You know, it's, uh, you know, he doesn't drive cars fast. He doesn't, you know, do anything too insane. You know, he's, it's smart people being smart. And, and uh, yes, and the damn jump, uh, the funnel jump, whatever we want to call it, like that is impossible, but it is desperate. It's not done in the way of like Keanu going under the bus or even Bruce Willis, like, I mean, Bruce Willis it's tying the, the fire Vin hose. Diesel yeah. way. Vin Diesel yes. would be like, oh, man, well, now we're all wet or like whatever. I mean, like, the, I'm just mad about them surviving that crazy car chase, chase in like the last one. Just like, no, no, nobody survives that. Nobody survives your like car. What was it? Swinging to like a vine off a cliff. No. Um, like, and I, I think like, I mean, I think like our whole premise of this series has been like, what is in a great, great summer blockbuster and where are we going awry? And to me, everything you're talking about is where I feel like we've gone awry by taking the humanity out of our summer blockbusters, by making them literal immortals, by making them humans who act like immortals. I'm tired of it. You know, I'm really tired of it. And I just I am thrilled watching Harrison Ford fall down in the mud. I am. I am. I don't. I, and I, I like watching him fall down in real mud and not CGI mud. And there is just something about the tactility that even if it looks smaller and you're not watching a planet explode, it is more thrilling than watching a CG planet explode. I, I mean, I, I said that, too. And, and, you know, there's so much to love in speed because of the practicality of it. But I do I do like this idea. I think what pulls us in because this movie could be done badly, like it clearly so many scripts were written. Why, why didn't it take off? I think at the end of the day, what makes this movie good is the way that these characters are represented, the way that the even the movie switches tones. You know, very, very rarely do you say like a movie is good because it has multiple editors. I think that's always a sign that a movie is bad. I think The Fugitive had like five or six editors. Because this is, is another movie where they only had 10 weeks from the end of shooting to get it in theaters. Wow. Why does that keep happening? That's well, so Well, because crazy. I think they're trying to make their bank, you know, yeah. and I think that, but that editing style of this movie might have allowed what we talked about early on to create a narrative which gave you very well-rounded Tommy Lee Jones and a very well-rounded Harrison Ford. Like the movie just keeps on passing the baton back and forth between them. And without ever really meeting on screen, you know, besides a few like little chase moments, they are passing the baton even in the scenes as it gets to like, that third act when Harrison Ford calls Tommy Lee Jones to come to the house. Like they're helping each other solve the crime. Yeah, I love when he uses him to like. Yeah. The, yeah. They become partners. It's a buddy cop movie where ultimately the buddy cops are never on screen together. And but they create this relationship, I think, through. Maybe the multiple editors, because if like if I'm editing the Tommy Lee Jones stuff, I'm going to be creating the I'm creating the Tommy Lee Jones movie, and somebody else is creating the Harrison Ford movie. And maybe that mesh was actually really important for why this movie succeeds. Because, uh, yes, like you said, who cares about the plot? Ultimately, the plot I think is actually well drawn, but it's 
the I think we relate to both of these characters. I think we're like, I like these characters. So for that reason, I do believe that Tommy Lee Jones is a more iconic performance to get the Academy Award for that. I don't think Harrison Ford is, but I think that Tommy Lee Jones in our memeable culture give us a better performance than or a more memorable performance than DiCaprio and, and Gilbert Grape, which is a movie I loved and owned and had it on Laserdisc and, and even VHS. Uh, you know, and uh, who in the uh, and you know Ray Fiennes, I would say that Ben Kingsley is the character that I'm looking at in that movie more than Ray Fiennes. I think Ray Fiennes is a straight man to that character, straight man, but he's very good. He's very, very good. Well, I was with you up until the very, very ending. Um, All right. <laughs> you're still wrong. It should have been Leonardo. That's fine. Um, right. Maybe if it was Leonardo, we wouldn't have so many boring, I have my hair come back all the time, Leonardo's in this future. But it's fine. Um, but yes, to that point, I mean, think about how this movie ends. It doesn't end with Harrison Ford in court being told he's innocent. Mm-hmm. It doesn't like that. Ultimately, the movie doesn't go there. It doesn't need to go there. It goes just to Harrison Ford in the back of a car with Tommy Lee Jones and Tommy Lee Jones takes off his handcuffs and they have just this quiet little exchange. Thought you didn't care. I don't. (laughs) Don't tell anybody, okay? That is why I think this movie has the Casablanca ending. You know, it's not about the ending of the war. It's not about anything. It's just about these two men. And I like that. Yeah, it's like he got his man. To me, it's the Midnight Run ending. And I like I talk about Midnight Run forever. I love Midnight Run so much. It's a great film. But it's what I love about the ending of Midnight Run is De Niro gets Grodin back to L.A. in time. He did it. He lets him go. He knows that Groden is in the right. Like, Groden has to be on the run or he's going to get killed. But he did his job, too. And that is, I don't know, there is an element to that uh, that has a Casablanca ending, too. Like, looks like I'm walking. That's the end mm-hmm. of uh, Midnight Run. You know, that there is this this kind of uh, tip of the hat to those old films. Like, they're, the characters did their job. You still feel fulfilled even though, you know, even though Groden isn't brought into the bail bondsman because you know that that is corrupt now. And even though Tommy Lee Jones, you know, like their, their mission changed, but they still did it. And I, I do love that. And, and yeah. And so for that reason, I would say this makes a higher contention on my list of, I have to look at the list, the, the 40 movies we already have, but this makes a, this makes a strong argument for just a solidly built thriller. I want to see what else is on the list as far as thrillers are concerned. But if North by Northwest is not on the list, I want to see if we have something like this because this is a movie and a genre of movie that I feel like we revisit a lot. We love. It's indicative of an American film. And it may be one of the best versions of it. I have to look at the list, but that's where I'm at right now. I mean, I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm listening. And by the way, I'll just read a couple quick sentences out of that people review that did not like oh, the yeah. movie. Um, it says, few program concepts have ever been so ideally suited to, t- to serious TV as The Fugitive. Um, but this movie suffers by invidious comparison. It doesn't have time to create the relationships and romances for Kimball that enliven the series. Ford is just on his own. And the screenwriters seem less concerned with character than with setting up Andrew Davis for action scenes where he is most comfortable. He also thinks that the script is too convoluted and that no longer is Mrs. Mrs. Kimball's murder a simple piece of random violence. Now it's part of a corporate conspiracy and the film treats this profoundly preposterous plot as if it were a serious idea. 
The fugitive demands not only a mega suspension of disbelief, but a convenient loss of memory. Pretending this movie is an original notion, which I guess I did, is the best way to get through it feeling entertained. All right. Well, you know what? If we're going to be doing like some breaking down of, yes, I get it. I mean, and look, I can sit here and and rip apart other movies for being unbelievable, but I want to believe this one. And I, 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 you know, I get it all. And I think that you can break apart this movie a lot, but I think it is really, really fun. And I, I want to leave you with this, Amy. I don't know if you've ever seen this. So I went with my mom as her date to reconnect with Governor Bill Clinton. We walked into the ballroom. It was a big hotel ballroom. It was the Palmer House Hilton, big Hilton hotel ballroom. Walked into the ballroom, it was packed with people. It's actually, it's the ballroom from the end of the movie, The Fugitive, remember? So, that ballroom. So, my mom and I walk in, it's packed with people. Uh, the, sorry, the end where uh, Harrison Ford as Dr. Richard Kimball uh, uh, bursts in to confront Dr. Charles Nichols, right? Okay, so, that ballroom. So. My mom and I walk in. It's packed with people. Why does Kimball confront Nichols? Well, I know we all know this, but, no, no, but, 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 Kimball, he found out that Nichols, along with Devlin McGregor and Lentz, who's mysteriously died, they had hired Frederick Sykes, the one-armed man, to kill Kimball. Kimball's wife wasn't even the target. I know we all know this, but they were going to kill Kimball because he wasn't going to approve certain liver samples to pass RUD90. So Kimball finds out about all of this, and of course he's furious, and he bursts in the ballroom, and he goes, just switch the samples. And Dr. Nichols is like, uh, Lady Sanchez. Gentlemen, my friend, Dr. Richard Campbell. What accent did that guy have, by the way? He goes, you switched the samples and you doctored your research so that you could have Provasic. Anyway, so it's that ballroom. So we walk into that ballroom. It was packed with people. I love that. I love that. Well, thank you for making me laugh. And I think with that, we should say we've done our action films for this minute, for these these 90s action films that we thought were in contention. Now let's actually go to what you've been crying for or laughing for. A proper comedy. Comedy so, blockbusters. Yeah. We're in. I think we have to start clearly with a movie that eh, maybe straddles both worlds. It is The Hangover. If you want to go to Vegas without me, that is totally cool. What are you talking about? Well, you know, Phil and Stu, they're your buddies and it's your bachelor party and those two love you. Boys and their bachelor parties, it's gross. It is gross. I just wish your friends were as mature as you. They are mature, actually. You just have to get to know them better. Paging Dr. Douchebag. Now this is Vegas. Through a night we'll never forget. Uh, what happened last night? Am I missing a tooth? Oh. <laughs> Whose baby is that? Check its collar or something. I looked everywhere. Nobody's seen Doug. I don't think I've ever been this hungover. What's on your arm? You were in the hospital last night. <laughs> <laughs> the only important thing now is that we find Doug. Where's your car, officers? Oh, God. I think it was just you guys and one other guy. Was he okay? He was fine. Just whacked out of his mind. <laughs> oh, we were messed up. Is there anything you can tell us about what may have happened last night? Congratulations, dude. You got married. She is wearing my grandmother's Holocaust ring. I didn't know they give out rings at the Holocaust. 
These gentlemen volunteered to demonstrate how a stun gun is used to subdue a suspect. qualified to be taking care of that baby. Oh my God. We're getting married in five hours. Yeah, that's not going to happen. The biggest comedy blockbuster of all time. Am I right in saying that? I think it might be. Yeah. I think it might be. We will find out for sure if it's the biggest comedy blockbuster next week uh, when we dig into it. But uh, I'm glad we took this audible, Amy. I'm glad that we uh, had a chance to break down The Fugitive, a movie that I don't think gets enough love and respect. Um, but we will see you next week. Next week. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group, that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right, go to tpublic.com slash stores slash Unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.